You're listening to Life and Health Matters with Dr. Shakib, and this is yours truly, Momak Shakib. In this podcast, I'll interview Dr. Dominic D'Agostino, who's a PhD and Associate Professor of Department of Molecular Pharmacology and Physiology of USF Morsani College of Medicine. To visit his work and everything that he's done with regards to diet and different conditions, not just cancer, I recommend you check out ketonutrition.org. If you have any questions, please direct them via email to drs, like doctors, podcast show at gmail.com. Like, subscribe, and share the podcast. If you have any suggestions for future shows, this is the avenue to let me know. With no further hesitation, let's listen to the interview. Hey, Dr. D'Agostino, thank you so much for joining me and everyone else listening here, accepting this invitation to explore your perhaps not so recent research on the subject of diet, nutrition, and cancer specifically, and perhaps we can explore the impact of that on all the other types of chronic uh, conditions, diseases, and inflammation. So why don't you tell Thanks us a little bit me. about yourself? Absolutely. It's my pleasure. <laughs> I'm, I'm super excited. So if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yes. Uh, my tr- formal academic training was in neuroscience, and I trained at Rutgers University and the University of Medicine and Dentistry. And I studied primarily the neural control of autonomic regulation. So how the brain controls our body. There are things that our body does that we don't have to think about. For example, breathing. And there's auto autonomic uh, systems that control that and they respond. Hey, Dr. Shakib here giving you a heads up when you listen to this episode of the podcast with Dr. Dominique D'Agostino, you'll notice a lot of interruptions that the cell connection was not optimal. So we lost a few times, we lost the connection But the interview was so valuable that I just thought I'll do my very best to edit them out. So just forgive me for that, but listen to the message it has and hope you enjoy it. ...started studying the effects of extreme environments on physiology. And I started looking at uh, oxygen toxicity seizures, which is a limitation for hyperbaric oxygen therapy. And it also limits our Navy SEAL divers in some regards. So the research that I did on uh, high levels of oxygen led me to the cancer research that we've been doing. And uh, specifically that cancer cells are vulnerable to high levels of oxygen and they thrive in a hypoxic environment and they have some interesting changes in their metabolism or shall we say their diet. So cancer cells basically consume a different food than normal healthy cells. And we studied uh, how cancer cells obtain their energy and how they grow and how different dietary interventions can be used to uh, alter 
and slow down the growth uh, of cancer. And so, and then we studied uh, a number of other things related to the ketogenic diet, which is uh, a nutritional intervention that can be used uh, for a wide range of applications. So is this something that the ketogenic diet, is that something that you discovered or is that something that's been around? It's just recently it's been brought to the general public's attention. Yeah, good question. The ketogenic diet has actually been around since the early 1920s. It was really developed at the Mayo Clinic and used... uh, by a number of institutes, Johns Hopkins probably has one of the larger ketogenic diet clinics specifically for epilepsy and uh, a growing list of seizure disorders. So it tends to work for all different types of seizures. And uh, over the years, people started hearing about it uh, from the Atkins diet because that's, I guess you could say that's a form of the ketogenic diet. It's not really, uh, it differs much from the clinical Uh, ketogenic diet, but it has uh, the science supporting the use of the ketogenic diet for different applications outside of epilepsy. The science is actually emerging, and I think the popularity uh, hopefully will sort of parallel the the scientific publications that are supporting its use. Uh, We lost you a little bit, um, and hopefully... um, when we go back and listen, it's not going to be uh, making too much of a difference in trying to figure out what we missed here. But for some reason, the connection was lost a little bit. Um, so um, just to rehash, just in case, and if you don't mind, um, add to it, uh, you were saying that ketogenic versus Atkins, they're essentially, or Atkins is a variation or a sub Yes, that's correct. Category of uh, uh, ketogenic diet. And so you use the words hypoxia. So just to just since we have all different types of people listening to this podcast, um, we do as a normal human being without cancer have cancerous cells within us. So the question then is, why is it that all of a sudden these cancer cells um, which exist in all of us, uh, take over the body, so to speak. And uh, so there are obviously some things that support their growth more than usual. And that's something from your discovery and your research has to do with uh, the level of oxygen and the type of diet that the individual has uh, that either supports or actually um, (laughs) kicks the cancer cells out of chaos. Yeah. um, And it is, it it can be very complex, especially for different types of cancers. If we talk about a solid tumor, uh, we know, for example, that there are a wide range of things that can initiate the transition of a normal cell to a cancer cell. And this could be environmental toxins, it could be stress, it could be our failure of the immune system. Um, And depending on the organ, for example, if we take the liver, the liver is kind of a a good place, if you want to use that term, an unfortunate place that a precancerous cell can sort of have a fertile environment uh, to grow and become a tumor. 
And if the tumor gets large enough and under certain conditions, uh, the cells can metastasize to different areas of the body. And most people don't die of a tumor per se, but they die of uh, the metastasis, which means the tumor to spread to other organs and then cause a tumor burden that then, you know, can succumb to uh, if the patient succumbs when the tumor burden gets high enough. So then, you know, this is a question I always have had, which is, if let's say um, the liver, and I assume it's most more than likely the liver is the is a common place because liver is like a garbage disposal. So all everything goes through it, including our hormones, to get bound to protein to go to the rest of the body, which is a whole different subject. But um, yeah. is it because uh, how is it that? If it's being transmitted, let's say it's it's converted, a normal cell under specific circumstances is now becomes cancerous, and it's being transmitted to other parts of the body through the bloodstream. How is it that the blood itself does not capture that cancer uh, feature or the blood vessels? Are the circumstances different for every? tissue in the body or generally speaking lack of oxygen and a bad diet nourishes the environment it basically creates the right environment for all perhaps other factors to get added to the picture to convert a normal cell into a cancerous cell am i making sense yeah yeah it, well you have a, a number of questions there and i'll, I'll kind of <laughs> uh, so it depends it's very good questions if if it depends on the tumor type so uh for example leukemia or uh some forms of lymph- lymphoma can the cells can expand and grow uh, in the plasma and but other types of cancers like brain cancers, it's thought that some brain cancers cannot even survive, you know, outside of the brain because they need a specialized environment uh, to grow and proliferate. To some extent, it's also the failure of our immune system to recognize surface markers on the tumors or on the cancer cells. And, uh, and some cancer cells are very good at evading uh, the immune system. That's actually one of the hallmarks of cancer now, uh, a recent hallmark of cancer as of 2011. Uh, but cancer cells can also proliferate like stem cells uh, indefinitely. They, they are immortalized. There's actually a book called The Immortalized Life of Henrietta Lacks. <laughs> and uh, actually, they made it into a movie, Oprah Winfrey played in the movie. And it was from a patient uh, who had a particular cell type called HeLa cells. And now many cancer biologists use these cells in their, in their lab and they just grow exponentially and they're immortalized. Uh, so that's another characteristic. And there's a very, there's very defined metabolic, uh, uh, things that happen within the cancer cell that allow for these hallmarks of cancers uh, of cancer to take place. And we study sort of the metabolic reprogramming and, and specifically how cancer metabolism is different than normal cell metabolism. And that will influence how we feed our body uh, and also how we target uh, cancer. And it's only recently that scientists uh, they knew this for many years, or some people did, but only recently have have mainstream 
top tier academic scientists uh, started redirecting their focus away from genomic targeting to metabolic targeting. So in other words, um, instead of trying to, to basically eradicate cancer cells, we're learning how to intercept with how cancer cells reproduce or proliferate and that way, with that interception, we have a better chance of stopping it. Is that what that means? Yeah, uh, that's a good description because <laughs> okay. the metabolic-based uh, uh, therapies, which could include nutrition, but there's also a growing toolbox of metabolic drugs that are being studied by pharmaceutical companies. These, these therapies work in a much more uh, gentle way to suppress and marginalize the fuel source for the cancer. And that's so, really important. So the fuel source for the cancer um, is what exactly? Uh, every cancer cell is sort of uniquely different, but the primary fuel source for cancer, it would be glucose and glutamine. And to some extent, uh, some cancers can use fatty acids for uh, growth and proliferation. But when it comes to an energy source, the energy source needs to be fermentable. And there are specific amino acids. Glutamine is one that I mentioned, and sugar, which would be glucose, are really 90% of the nutrition, if you will, uh, of cancer cells. So when you say glucose, are we talking mm -hmm. about even um, are we talking about simple sugar here, or are we talking about even fructose from, you know, from fruit? Uh, primarily, yeah, glucose, fructose would have to be converted to, uh, to glucose. The fructose is used in different pathways, but glucose is the primary energy source metabolized in the cell, uh, in cancer cells. And, and we can actually image glucose metabolism with a PET scan. And that's really the gold standard uh, imaging tool that oncologists use to image the location and aggressiveness of tumors. They use what's called a fluorodeoxyglucose PET scan. And there are cancer cells, some of them can have rates of glucose consumption 100 to 200 times higher than normal healthy cells uh, in the same organ. Wow. So just like uh, in CT scan, you can find the hot spots, you know, obviously chemicals yeah. are injected and it goes to the hot spots. They're looking for through PET scan. They're looking what areas are being overly utilizing uh, glucose, so to speak. And then they can pinpoint the areas where the cancers, uh, cancer cells are. Um, yeah. or, wow. That's amazing. That's <laughs> Wow, that's uh, that's unbelievable. So now, if if we're intercepting, um, where do we find glutamine? Let's start with that. Where what's a good source of glutamine? Well, cells can kind of uh, recycle, and there's a glutamine glutamate cycle. So cells can kind of come up with their own glutamine. It's a little bit harder to target, but glutamine is an amino acid found in uh, in foods that have protein. So it is kind of important. The ketogenic diet is actually, uh, the clinical ketogenic diet is restricted in protein because if you have too much protein, it's hard to get into a state of therapeutic ketosis. So protein is typically between 8 and 12%. Now, a modified ketogenic diet is a little bit higher in protein. 
So your protein level will really determine the level of glutamine that you have uh, in your body. And we don't know if reducing uh, glutamine uh, containing food has a big impact on uh, sort of your blood levels of glutamine. What we do know is that glutamine plays an important role in your immune system and immune cells tend to use glutamine. So this has become a much harder metabolic target for cancer because if you reduce glutamine too low, then you compromise your immune system. And some cancer patients are given high levels of glutamine uh, to help restore their gastrointestinal mucosa, which is damaged by things like uh, chemotherapy. Uh, and we don't know if that's, we don't have good information if that's helping or hurting the situation. So this is an ongoing area of research, whereas targeting glucose is a little bit easier. And glucose is also uh, typically represents a much higher concentration in the blood than glutamine. So targeting glucose, you'll be much more successful in targeting glucose than targeting glutamine. But it is also important to target uh, glutamine and perhaps through dietary interventions. So if glutamine is one of the two main things that basically provides nutrition, or I guess those two are needed for fermentation, which is what cancer cells like. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. They derive most of their energy through fermentation because their mitochondria, the, the organelles within the cell that generate energy, are altered or damaged in a way that prevents them from using things like fatty acids and ketone bodies as a source of energy. So it, the cancer oh. cells rely on glycolysis or substrate level uh, energy production. So to simplify, if they like glucose and glutamine as a source of their food, if we can nourish the, uh, the human being that has these cancer cells that are dying for us to take glucose and glutamine so they can feed off of it, if we can somehow provide energy, a different source of energy for us, then in essence, we're starving the cancer cells and therefore we're controlling the spreading or the proliferation of the cancer. Is that right? Yeah. So uh, a dietary intervention that lowers glucose will definitely do that. It will marginalize the energy source. Um, it also does another thing that's really important. It, well, two things really. It suppresses the hormone insulin. And when you suppress the hormone insulin with, for example, a ketogenic diet or intermittent fasting, uh, insulin is really what drives the growth pathways for uh, tumor cells. And it also decreases uh, inflammatory markers that have been shown to speed the growth and proliferation and the metastasis, which is the, uh, the ability of a tumor to spread to other organs. It decreases that inflammatory pathway that drives that, that metastatic process. So a well-formulated uh, ketogenic diet, and there's other types of diets that could also do this, but uh, we study the ketogenic diet because it appears to have the most research in regards to a specialized diet. Uh, it does that. So it lowers glucose. It does lower glutamine, and it uh, suppresses the hormone insulin, and thereby the IGF-1 pathway and other growth factors, and also lowers inflammation. Now, for people who are, I mean, this should, in essence, 
help everyone because of the uh, inflammatory response that the body can have just as a result of fighting the cancer or precancerous situations. Now, my, my biggest question, and you already clarified that there is a difference between Atkins, which is high protein versus ketogenic diet, which is high fat. My biggest concern when it comes to fat, and I assume by fat, you don't mean just like um, essential fatty acids or fats from, let's say, nuts. We're talking about animal fat here, correct? Uh, healthy fats. So the fats can come actually from uh, any source if you approach it from a clinical perspective. But over the last 10 years, we've really uh, increased our knowledge about uh, good fats and bad fats. And I think it's becoming increasingly more important to formulate uh, you know, a ketogenic diet that that is more that that decreases certain types of fats and increases the availability of other fats, uh, essential fatty acids, for example. And uh, classically, the ketogenic diet has been dairy-based, which really does not work well with, with some people. And I have found personally that replacing the dairy fat, which is a saturated fat, with more monounsaturated fats, like uh, you know that you would get from nuts and avocados. Uh, really uh, uh, helped improve my metabolic markers. Um, so I think I think you need to personalize the. I think the ketogenic diet needs to be personalized for each patient, depending upon their food types that work with them. How do how is that determined? How is it, how do we know what food type is right for what individual? Yeah, that's an emerging area of science right now. Uh, but it really comes down to the dietitian who, uh, and there are many out there, uh, but typically a patient will work with a registered dietitian or a certified nutrition specialist and use, they'll have sort of like a cookie cutter <laughs> uh, diet plan and for macronutrients, which is the percentage of fats, the proteins to carbohydrates being very restricted. And you have, and then you basically select the foods and the menu uh, that that meets certain calculations for the percentage of fat, which is typically for the ketogenic diet between 90 and 65. If it's a modified ketogenic diet, protein between 8% and like 28%. And then carbohydrates almost always stay below 10%. Uh, and it's mostly fiber, usually about 5%. And it's mostly just fibrous carbs, like uh, vegetables. Uh, and then the fats and the, the food types will be dependent upon the patient. So some patients can't eat nuts. Some have a dairy allergy. So you would eliminate dairy altogether. And then you would work with the patient to select the foods that would be optimal for their uh, palatability, tolerability, and, and avoiding potential allergens too is very, very important. I see. Um, just for the listeners, I just want to br- uh, bring to your attention that all the chemicals used for in factory farming, they're essentially fat soluble. So that means all that garbage goes into the fat. So if you're having um, thinking from this conversation that 
let's say bacon is what you want to eat, for one, I think probably a percentage of protein to fat in bacon is probably higher. And yeah. that bacon's uh, fat that you're shooting for is if it's uh, not coming from a pasture-raised animal, now we're talking about chemicals that you're consuming, which in essence can feed the cancer that you're trying to fight. Yeah, <laughs> that is like important. A... Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, have you heard of metabolic typing? You know, I've heard about it. Um, I tend to be kind of conventional in that if it's not really on PubMed, <laughs> I don't have a yeah. whole lot of knowledge. Like, uh, so I kind of go right to the literature on that. Uh, I have been, and I think this is sort of in line with nutritional genomics uh, yes. and uh, nutrinomics or nutritional genomics. And I have been keeping up on that because I have my 23andMe data and then working and experimenting with different platforms. Uh, but I think there's knowledge to, from what I know about it. And I, I, I agree. I, uh, have to admit my knowledge is somewhat limited. It does seem like a, a pretty sensible way to get an overview of, uh, of, uh, a good step forward in understanding and optimizing, uh, the diet for a person. Absolutely. Um, I mean, the, the, the premise that it's based on uh, makes total sense, which is, you know, we're all genetically, if we go back, we are from different parts of the world and different parts of the world provide different type of nutritional uh, sources. Some have more protein and some with more protein in the uh, perhaps marine animal department than, uh, let's say, a buffalo or a cow. So uh, we genetically ha have a variety of, uh, uh, we have our variations. And then to, in today's society, you know, food from other parts of the world comes. So there, it creates that conflict between the genes and the nutritional source. This is assuming there is no GMO or genetically modified food that we're consuming, or this is pure pasture-raised animals. So putting those assumptions into the picture here, now um, someone like me from Middle East uh, I never knew what avocado was until I came to this country, and I love avocado. So am I, yeah. by consuming avocado, am I really jacking up my uh, genetic, not genetic makeup, but what my genes would have liked to have uh, versus someone who is, uh, I don't know, from Alaska or whatever the case may be, which, you know, actually that probably is the right kind of fat to consume. Yeah. So then when we talk about a high consumption of good fat here, and if I, through metabolic typing, which is in fact, oh my gosh, I think it's 27 pages of questions, which are not necessarily, do you like lettuce or do you like beef, but more like uh, it's actually quite, if you categorize the questions, you'll see that a lot of them are, um, they go after your autonomic nervous system. Like what's the ratio of your pupil to your iris? Uh, you know, that's like one of the questions yeah. because they're trying to see what's driving your metabolism. And based on that, they recommend, uh, okay, these are the foods that more than likely are, uh, you know, they support your genetic likes. Uh, then in those instances where, um, 
um, perhaps you are suggested to consume more vegetables and now you're you're taking more of a good fat, then my question always is, am I really helping it or am I not? <sighs> yeah. I guess before I die, we'll know the answer probably, <laughs> I hope. <laughs> but I just wanted to see what your thoughts on that subject was, which um, I appreciate what you just shared with uh, with. Um, all of us here. So what does your diet look like? I mean, when I think of ketogenic diet, I think, I don't know if I can consume that much fat. And frankly, am I going to be starving? Because, you know, what is like, what, what did you eat yesterday from breakfast to dinner, which um, I guess it differs from you to me, depending on what our hypersensitivities are, if any. Yeah, and I try to vary my diet um, uh, quite a lot, and but still stick with maybe the you know a staple twelve to fifteen foods. Um, but yesterday, um, I actually I do eat a lot of eggs, and we try to get them locally here. So I think I had like maybe a spinach egg omelet for my first meal, and. Uh, and my first meal was eaten a little bit later in the day or late morning. And I kind of skip an early breakfast and will work maybe three or four hours uh, and bef- before I actually eat anything because I like to work in a, in a somewhat uh, fasted state or semi-fasted state. And then for dinner, actually, we had, uh, and this may sound unusual for some of your readers, uh, we had liver and kidney. So uh, some of the foods that we've been uh, using are from U.S. Wellness Meats, and it's all pasture-raised. And uh, my wife is from Hungary, and she, from from her background, she was used to eating organ meats, which was very strange to me when we met. So about once or twice a week, we will have uh, some kind of organ meat, whether it be heart, uh, kidney, or liver, and then she cooks it in, typically in. Um, you know, with some kind of green vegetable in butter or lard. And, uh, and that'll be almost like a perfect ketogenic meal. And she tends to have a starch with her meal because she doesn't follow a ketogenic diet, but I'll have typically like a large salad, uh, with, uh, either beef, chicken, uh, or fish. We don't eat a whole lot of pork, uh, but occasionally we do. Uh, I don't eat much bacon, you know, on occasion I will, <laughs> uh, but mostly, uh, we eat a lot of fish and we have a uh, grass-fed uh, beef that we get. We try to source that locally. And uh, lots of green vegetables, too. So the one thing that's maybe different about my ketogenic diet is that it has very liberal amounts of vegetables, a lot of broccoli, asparagus, cauliflower, uh, and big big salads with arugula and mixed greens and, and things like that, and olive oil, lots of olive oil and avocado oil. So, so this, this, this does not really sound that strange or like unusual to Uh, me, uh, just because just like your wife, I'm used to eating internal organs becomes highly important to make sure that it comes from clean animals here. And we're not talking about sanitation here. We're talking about (laughs) chemical use or abuse, uh, but 
so it's it's really a lot of food. Now, I noticed that uh, early on in this interview, you mentioned uh, uh, intermittent fasting, which is a whole different subject. You know, intermittent fasting, if you're eating dinner at 8 o'clock and you get up in the morning and you eat breakfast at 8, it's not a big deal. That's 12 hours that some people consider to be intermittent fasting. Yeah. So I don't know if that's even fasting. Um, so if, when, it, how late do you eat? Well, I don't do it every day because if I do do intermittent fasting, I tend to lose too much weight actually. And that's great for people who really have that goal to lose weight. But for me, I like to do it particularly on the days that I'm teaching or presenting, or if I'm just very busy, it actually saves time if I have to leave early for work. Uh, and then I'll have my first meal somewhere between, uh, 12 noon and 2 p.m. And and then I'll have my last meal maybe around, you know, 9 or 10. So I'll be, that would be fasting for 16 hours and eating within uh, an eight-hour window. And typically at the end of that 16 hours, my ketone levels uh, will be in the low to moderate range and my blood glucose and insulin levels will be low. So, and that's actually when I feel the best. I feel um, if my body is undernourished, or, or, or if my body has sufficient calories, you know, throughout the week, and I do intermittent fasting, that fasting state is actually when I feel the best. I feel my head is clear, and uh, I tend to get a lot of work done on the days that I do intermittent fasting. But I don't I do it all the time. Uh, I used to, and then I started losing weight, and I just did not have the appetite to get the calories in that I need. But then that side effect, that side effect becomes a very useful tool for people who want to lose weight. And that if you eat a low carb diet or a ketogenic diet, it tends to uh, moderate your appetite. I would, I would it attenuates the cravings that you have. And it allows you to adhere to uh, your diet in, in a way that allows you to calorie restrict. Essentially, you do need to calorie restrict if you if you to lose weight. And the ketogenic diet and intermittent fasting are two tools for doing that, and they can be combined together. I see. So, for people who follow ketogenic diet, would you advise them to uh, monitor their level of ketone and glucose on a regular basis? I think that's really important, especially in the beginning. And I don't do it as near as much as I did when I first started because I can almost predict <laughs> based upon how I feel where my glucose and ketones are. But mm -hmm. it's, I, I think for people to, to monitor their glucose, which is, it's very inexpensive, maybe 25 cents, you know, when you use a strip and a glucometer. And there's a device called the Precision Extra or the Precision Neo that can be used to do this that measures both glucose and ketones. And what I like to do is basically, you know, I will follow a diet or do intermittent fasting and subjectively determine when I feel the best. And then I will measure at that point. And that will give me sort of an indication of what glucose and ketone level you know, is optimal for me to feel most energetic. So that's how I kind of do it. But when you start the ketogenic diet, it's, it's important to know that you're doing it right by measuring your blood ketones, because I believe a lot of benefits of the ketogenic diet, particularly for different disorders, are linked to the elevation of ketones. 
I see. Um, what is, or if any, um, your recommendation for people to what kind of a recipes or cookbook or is there anything you recommend for people who wish to follow the ketogenic diet is there one that you use primarily as a guide yeah you know there's a lot out there and it will it really will depend on the reason you're using the ketogenic diet when it comes to uh, epilepsy or other disorders, the Charlie Foundation is actually a great resource. And it was the first thing that I stumbled upon in 2008. And I saw the movie First Do No Harm uh, with Meryl Streep. Many people don't know Meryl Streep did a movie about the ketogenic diet. And, uh, and the movie is called First Do No Harm. And it describes using the ketogenic diet uh, in an, a, a child with epilepsy. So there's Eric Kossoff is an author who wrote the ketogenic diet for uh, epilepsy and other neurological disorders. So that's a really good book. Uh, the Art and Science of Low-Carbohydrate Living is very good. That's by Jeff Bolick and Stephen Finney. And I have a website, ketonutrition.org, and I've compiled a list of books on that website based upon uh, the different the different applications oh, people have, like, you know, there's a book specifically on there for, you know, weight loss. There's one for migraines. There's one for cancer. Uh, there's one for epilepsy and the diet formulation and the way you approach implementing and sustaining the diet can be different depending on what you're using it for. That's perfect. So people have that as a resource. I so much appreciate what you have done, how um, you make yourself available for these interviews and how uh, generously you're offering your information to the general public. I think it's heartbreaking to see uh, with uh, the amount of money the country spends on health care, which is more managing sick care, yeah, mediocre at mediocre at best. Um, there is such a decline in our health level overall at, at every level of at every age group per se. So I appreciate what uh, the time you've taken here. Um, I, I I can't thank you enough for uh, accepting this. Uh, interview and sharing this information um, I will make sure that uh, your information on the website you recommended ketonutrition.org is available in the uh, notes for the, the show notes and once again Dr. D'Agostino thank you so much for all that you do and I, I love you for it thank you so much thank you again for having me I appreciate it you have a great day take care bye-bye bye-bye